Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. And I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Good morning. Let's review. Democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily obey the laws. They voluntarily obey the laws because they believe they're accountable to God. They sincerely believe they're accountable to God. You take away religion, you cannot employ enough police. Because synagogues and churches essentially teach people to love something that's bigger than themselves. I read an article that its outline was that America is in a steep decline because it is no longer loving something greater than itself. People are not loving anything greater than themselves. And the writer starts off by saying that the country was founded in a love for God. And people came here risking, right, men, women, and children risking health and their very lives so that they could come here and worship God in a way that they felt free to worship God in the way they wanted. And that's why they came. It was for the love of God. And then the next kind of paragraph break, the next outline was, and then we began to slowly start defending our country, mostly motivated for the love of country. And you'll see men and women in the services that uh, are protecting us are doing it for the love of country. It's a scary thought when you think about this, that in 1961, during a presidential inaugural address, he says, quoting, right, his headmaster 20 years prior that would say in chapel regularly, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Why is that so important so many years ago and even 20 preceding that? Because selfish love is not a way to love a country. When you come here or when you are here to take from this country, the country is gone. Because selfless love will take, will take you to places that duty could never take you. Something, you have to love something greater than yourself to go to places you could never go otherwise. That's, 
That's what we're talking about in many respects in the application section of Galatians. Greetings. This is our sixth week in the book of Galatians. And if we're here studying chapter 5, we'll just look at two sentences. If you want to go to chapter 5, you may. I'll meet you there. Let's quickly review because now we're in the application section. You have to understand what 1 through 4 say before you can get to chapter 5. Chapter 1 through 4 are telling us the power of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ, when he died, he died to pay the penalty or the debt that we owed the Father for the cost of our sin. And his resurrection, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, was proof that we actually inherited the righteousness that was once Jesus. It belonged to Jesus. He died. He willed it to us if we have faith in those promises. And so now, therefore, right, uh, we are justified by faith, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, the Bible says. It also says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It says we have an entirely new identity. It says we are now um, descendants or heirs of Abraham, the promise that was given to Abraham, right, 4,000 years ago, that we would inherit righteousness as a gift someday. We're his sons. We have a whole new identity. We are clothed, it says, we are disguised in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now, what do we do? We eagerly await the righteousness that we already have obtained. We eagerly await that to experience the reality of that in the next life. All of that, one through four, is setting up for this climactic application that's the theme of the book. It's on the cover of your bulletin. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. Very difficult to exaggerate how repetitive that is. It is for freedom that Christ set you free. That's the overarching theme of the book and the application section, certainly. And so today we're going to look at some details of what that might look look like at 13 and 14. Let's read that. You know what? Let's read that out loud together. These are transcendent verses, right? So let's read it out loud together. Start with the word you, okay? (laughs) You, my brothers and sisters, call to be free. But do not let rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple enough, right? It's a simple lesson. You guys go do that. I'll see you next week. It's classic Bible. Simple, not easy. Why don't we do this? Why don't we serve one another in love humbly? Why don't we love each other, you know, love our neighbors as ourselves? Because there's so much more to this. And so what I'd like to do today is try to explain the depth of what these two sentences mean because we're having a difficult time applying them. And maybe if we understood better how we could do that and what they mean, we could, we could live a life that's a fragrant aroma, right? It's, it's a sweet aroma to the people around us, and we could be living in this sweet place of the abundant life that Jesus promised. So let me, I think what it would be appropriate is just let me answer three fundamental questions, three basic questions that will help clarify what this means and how we might be able to do that. The first one is, um, what does freedom of love, how does freedom of love work? How does it even work? Because I think that will help set the table for the other two things, and that is, um, so how, what does freedom to love look like, and then how do we get there? We're going to want to know how to get there. Okay, so that's our outline. That's how, that's how we make sense of these two sentences. Let's look at the first point. And the first one is, 
what is free, how does freedom of love work? And here's how it works. Freedom of love works because that's the way we were designed, that's what we were designed to do, to love. We're freedom to choose this way of living. Let's look at verse 13, and you'll see right out of the blocks, he's going to show us that freedom is not for one thing, but it's rather for another. It's for the way we were designed. Verse 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use, do not use your freedom to indulge or make as a base station for the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Right away, Paul is saying that it is our propensity to use freedom in a way that destroys the whole purpose of freedom in the first place. So the, the idea of freedom, whenever... Most of the time when people think they're free, it says, I'm free to do whatever I want. Paul is saying, actually, it contradicts itself when you use freedom that way. When you use freedom that way, your freedom is being used to enslave you. Because your freedom is not to do whatever you want. It's to choose an environment in which you are to live your life. And if you choose an environment in which you were designed, then you can love. The reason we can't love other people the way we ought to sacrificially and, and intelligently is because we're, we're doing it in some kind of selfish context. Um, you're not liberated by doing whatever we desire. Here's a, here's a great way of looking at it. Uh, uh, missionary and Bible scholar Elizabeth Elliot, she, she, when she talked about freedom, because everybody goes immediately to whatever I want to do, she said, think of it like fish freedom, Okay. When are fish free? When are they most free? In what environment? When they're sitting on the couch with like a, a remote under one fin and some Cheetos in the other? No. They can't, they are, no, they're enslaved there. Their life is in danger there. A, a fish is free when he chooses to be in the water in which he was designed to live. That's when the fish is going crazy. That's when the fish is fully liberated. So Paul is saying this, and this is the illusion that... Um, that Elizabeth Elliot is saying about our freedom. Our freedom is to choose the environment to live in, the way we were designed. And the way we were designed to live, the point is, the, the environment we were designed to live in is to serve one another in love humbly. This is, the, this is the culmination of the entire law, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's You're made by a loving God to give love to other people. And when you freely choose to live in that context, you can go crazy there. But what do we do? We use our freedom to enslave ourselves. Culturally, consistently, this is what we continually do. And we talked about it last week. You're welcome to look at uh, that on the web. But we, Paul mentioned, and Siren Kierkegaard made famous, the idea that we are usually choosing, we start off choosing some sort of passion, some, using using our freedom as a base camp for, for passionate expressions. And it's all about wanting and getting whatever we want. And this was an exciting way to live. It always leads to slavery. All of our addictions are over in this quadrant. I just want to please my body. And that ruins us. And so what happens, we do this for a number of years. And finally, we say, I just want peace. I just want peace of mind. And so we swing over to this other side and we, and we choose just a, a dedication to morality. And we, we just want to be good. We want to think people are thinking good things about us. And sometimes it's called legalism. Sometimes it's a commitment to just being a good person. And, but this is enslaving as well because it's still about us. This was about ego and flesh. This is about ego and our, psychi you know, our, our psyche. 
we're still enslaved to this peace of mind. And, and this is peace, but it's not exciting. And you'll see people, like in their 20s, kind of go crazy. They'll slow down into their 30s, and then they go nuts again in their 40s or 50s because this is boring. We have peace, but it's not exciting. We are meant for more. We are fish out of water over here using our freedom. We are fish out of water using our freedom for ego peace in our, in our psyche because we were meant for something much more. We were meant for excitement and peace together. We were, we were meant for peaceful excitement and exciting peace. And that can only be found, as we will see, when we go to the right place and we swim in the context of what we were meant to, to swim in. I'll, I'll show you how to get there in just a minute, but I want you to see that freedom is suicidal when it's selfish. It turns on itself. It, it destroys freedom, used selfishly, destroys the very freedom that we have. So when Paul's writing this, uh, um, a, a translation that one pastor put together, he said, you were called to be free, now don't use your freedom to de- destroy the design that you were made for, and that is to love. Don't, don't try to be a fish on the sofa. And if you conceive of freedom that way, if you define freedom as a way that's the ability to, to express your selfishness, it will always lead to ruin. It will always lead to slavery. You're meant for more. You, whatever you love, if it's not, if it's not, if it's not the Lord, right, if it's not the object of your love, you have to serve that. So... Um, if, you're, if, you're into, if you want power, you have to serve the power and all the means of gaining power. If you, if you want acceptance from other people, then you have to serve wanting everybody to like you. And, and you'll find yourself in a query sometimes going, now, how come I keep compromising on some moral standards? Oh, that's it, because I want people to like me. You're ser- See how you're serving acceptance in that context? I mean, some, some people, they're just so vain, and they're constantly serving vanity. They're buying and serving and worrying and fretting the thing that they chose, freely chose, to acknowledge, or even better, to love. So the, the point is, what, it, what does this freedom to love look like? It is, it is choosing to get tired of being a fish out of water and saying, I... I want, I want something more. I want this exciting peace or peaceful excitement. There has to be something more for me because this other slavery is killing me. It's choosing to be who you were designed to be, a giver of love. Okay, we'll explain a little bit more about that and how to get there in just a minute. I, what I'd like to do now is show you what it looks like. Okay, because, because if you look at 13 and 14 together, I've taken some parts out to make it flow a little better. It stays on subject. And look what it says. Here's what it looks like. So you were called to be free. Serve one another humbly in love. There's love, again, accentuated. Uh, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So clearly, you know, the subject here is is love. Humble, service, servant-type love. So let me briefly just describe what define what love is, and then let me give you a perspective that um, the writer has on what it might look like in our everyday lives. It's important to define it first because, you know, our definitions of love are more like, like love, you know, like L-U-V. Um, some of you old people might know, old being my age, um, um, those little uh, cartoon, those two little naked kids, you know, love means never having to say you're sorry. Have you ever tried that? 
I think love means saying you're sorry a lot. So anyway, a whole, a whole strip was formed from that one quote because it's L-U-V, just love. Yeah, that's not real love. And um, we're going to spend the rest of chapter 5 and 6 in Galatians is going to defining what, like, what real love looks like. I, I just want you to know it's, it's muscular. You know, it has, it has traction. It's not a lot of the love that we, especially in today's culture, it's not telling somebody what they want to hear. It's not giving them necessarily what they want. It's not making someone else happy all the time, you know. It's not doing or saying things so that people like you. There it is again. It's about you, okay. Here's a great definition of love that we'll continue to build on in our weeks ahead, but let's do this. Let's look at this definition. Love is pursuing the growth of another person, or another way of putting it, kind of very similar, love is pursuing the maturity of another person. So love means knowing someone well enough or just, just seeing in them or maybe even hearing something from God to say, I care about their maturity, about their growth, and especially in the context of the local church, I, I'm very concerned about their spiritual growth, and I want to add to that maturity. I want to do whatever it takes, whether it's difficult or easy. Because sometimes this type of love, the real love, means giving someone a hug, crying on their shoulders, saying how much you love them, and then taking their bags to the curb. Because this job can't help you anymore. This house where you grew up that bears your last name is not a place for you to grow any further. It's stalling your growth. Maybe this relationship that you and I are in, it, it can't go any, we, gotta, we have to stop this because you can't grow. I can't be the person to help you grow anymore. And so those are, those are tough love. If you know parents that have had to walk suitcases to the curb, they'll tell you it is hard and it is love. It is tough love. There's a reason it's called that. So that's what love looks like. We'll look at it in future weeks ahead. Again, we'll look at the boundaries of what, the, what real love looks like. More time later. Here's the perspective that I, I want us to look at because it's so assertive uh, when Paul talks about loving one another, to serve one another in love and humility. It's assertive. It's looking. There's a great passage, a sentence in Philippians. He, he writes this that I want you to uh, notice I've... Um, highlighted some things. Do not look out, right? Do not look out for your own personal interest, but also, right? But also look out for your, for the interest of other people. The reason I like this word, this sentence is because it, the word for look out is uh, the word that is translated from Greek. We use the word scope. It almost sounds exactly like the word scope. So it's this idea of, of having a telescope, right, or, or binoculars, and you're constantly looking for opportunities to give love. Your life is not about taking. It's not about yourself. It is about giving love, and love is defined by providing something that causes a person to become more mature, to become a, a, a deeper-rooted Christian. And, and if, if uh, let me give you a couple of examples of what this might look like. Our executive pastor, Ray Anderson, his, his children are, are grown, but when they were little bitty, you know, I mean, kindergarten, pre-K, and, and working their way up, when they would drive to church, each Sunday they had this um, seek and find game, this look out, looking out. And as they were driving into church each week, pretty much, they would say, hey, uh, Ray and Diana, the mom and dad here, it, uh, would say, now we're doing the seek and find again today. I want you to seek and find someone to love. Seek and find. Be looking out for someone that you can encourage or help. 
at church today because there'll be people there that need that, and maybe God is going to use you to provide that. And then he, they should say, now at lunch, we'll kind of regroup as a family, and we'll just talk over your seek and find stories. It's a great, right, it's a great way to raise children to be looking assertively for loving people. That's what lookout means. One of our pastors has uh, recently had a great story that I found out kind of through a back door that uh, he was looking out for someone and he heard God's, you know, impressions. He was uh, mentoring a, a younger pastor that is starting a church and starting churches is extremely discouraging. It, uh, it's, very, it's lonely and there's so many different ways uh, to fall into despair. And man, it just, in a lot of ways, it just doesn't pay. And when I say it doesn't pay, I mean it literally does not pay. It doesn't pay. There's no pay in it. Well, anyway, and, you know, our pastor knew that. Uh, it never came up in the conversation. But they, they spent, you know, a couple hours together just talking through, you know, how he could be encouraging. And, and he was giving that younger pastor love. And they, he walked him down to the car and put his hand in his pocket. And he, oh, right. Then he heard, he, he felt God's, right, leading. And so he says to his young friend, he says, hey, listen, I never carry cash, but I'm wearing the same slacks I was wearing from a wedding I did two weeks ago, and I ha they paid me in cash, and I have this money, and I think God wants me to give you that, this money if that's okay. True story, it was okay. It was, it was okay for the younger pastor to take our pastor's money. And so he gave him the money, and, and he went off on his way. And he got, I found out through the wife, because he, the, our pastor called his wife and said, guess what, guess what, guess what, I have one of those stories. We have a story now where I was looking out, right, for someone I could help, and I felt God, you know, kind of directing me in this way. I followed up with a question, and, we, and I gave him this money. And now we have one of those stories. It was exciting, it was peaceful to be in the will of God. It was peaceful excitement. It was exciting peace. Those are my words. Those are Kierkegaard's words. But you, you see what happened? He was seeking this opportunity. And there's, here's, the, here's the thing, the real Christian life. It's exciting. You never know where you're going to empty your pockets. And it's peaceful because you know you're swimming, right, in the environment that you were built for loving one another. Okay, that's, that's what it was meant for. So, so when, the, when the passage says, serve one another in love with humility, the whole law, right, the entire law is summarized in this sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it looks like. You're looking for an opportunity to influence the maturity of someone else. That's what we use our freedom for. Let, Let's look at quickly. Let's look at a review because I, you're, I know you're waiting for this last part, right? What is, what, how does the, the freedom to love work? It works when you choose to be in the environment you were designed for, and that environment is to assertively be loving. Second, what, what, is it, what is it free to love look like? It's when you're looking for that, and then you follow up on that. So here's the big question, right? How do we get it? How do we get that love? We trade up. We trade up. And the reason I'm using this phrase is, uh, let me just start by saying the problem is that the only way we can be perpetually in this, I guess, offensive mode, this active mode of giving love, is if we are personally overflowing with love. OK? 
Okay? We have to be, overwhelmed is a great word, welled up with gratitude, appreciation. The focus of our life would be on the glory of God and the beauty and the majesty of God. And when that overflows, that's when we can love this way. That is, that overflow, that's where we swim. That's where we, that's, as fish, that's where we swim. That's what's good for our souls. Uh, David Wilcox, folk singer, talks about our souls are, are like a broken cup, you know? And when we keep trying to fill each other's cups, we can't because it's draining out faster than we can fill yours. And, and so what does he say to do? And he says, you need to take your cup to a waterfall and fill it up. And then the overflow is more than enough, okay? But you... But here's the thing. You can't just say, I'm sick of being a fish out of water. We don't change from one kind of idol to another because we, most of the time. We don't change because we just will to, because we decide to. Something, some, usually something has to happen, or mostly something replaces it. We replace one idol with another. Let me quote a, a Dr. Chalmers. So here's what we're going to do from now on. Before we quote this, uh, I can't pronounce most people's names. And so from now on, I'm going to say, I'm going to quote a man, and then that'll be good enough for everybody, okay? All right, was that, is that okay with everybody? Because I'm, I'm talking about for as long as I work here. Not today. For as long as I work here, I'll say, a man said or a woman said. And if you want to know the name of that person, you can come up afterwards or you look online and it'll be there. And then... Um, I won't have to constantly be embarrassed about uh, mispronouncing people's names. So this man, this doctor man, a smart doctor man, uh, let's go back, was, was showing us that we, that we get stuck because, because we, don't, we don't trade up enough. We, don't, we tend to replace one vice with another vice, but it's all, all the vices are all egocentric vices. Let me read this quote from Dr. Smart Guy. He says, Because never does a bad habit or flaw disappear by the mere, by the mere process of natural extinction, or, or at least very seldom does it, is it done away with by simple reasoning or effort or force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. See, we just replace it, and one taste is, is given way to another taste, and to lose its power entirely only because we've changed our affections in our minds. So he, he paints the picture like this. A boy who's passionate, you know, he's just surrendered to the slavery of his passions and whatever he wants to eat or drink or nap or whatever he wants to feel good, he does, he's addicted to that, and he doesn't choose to change that. He just finds a greater addiction, money. And he can't, he just says, you know, I'd rather be addicted to money and do whatever it takes. And, I'm, you know, so the, the freshman and sophomore in business school who's drinking and having all his fun, right, he just says, well, wait a minute, that, that won't land me in a good job, so I'll quit doing those because I want money. And so now he's just serving money. And then usually sometimes people run out of, they get bored with the money, and so they, want, they trade up to power. And they get tired of the power, and they trade up to, like, moral, you know, supremacy, so that they can look like they're in a better place in life. But see, they're not conquering anything. They're just replacing. 
They're still slaves. They're slaves over here to passions. They're slaves to money. They're slaves to power. They're slaves to moral superiority. They're still slaves because it's always about me. It's, it's, it's the love of me. There's no greater love in this formula than the love of the ego. We are still fish out of water in this context. And the gospel says you're supposed to be focusing on and eagerly awaiting on something that is so much greater than you. And you lose yourself and become self-forgetful in this eagerly awaiting. And like we were singing, I see you there sitting on your throne. You're beautiful. What about you? What? What about, who's talking about me? You're lost in the moment of the majesty and the beauty of who God is, that he loved you and delivered himself up for you. Now, here's the thing you need to know about fearing God. One of the many aspects of fearing God, okay? But here's one of them. Most people stall right here. They don't, they don't experience exciting peace or peaceful excitement because they have just continually replaced one set of vices that are egocentric with the other, and even their morality is an expression of looking good. And God will leave you here. The patience of God is to be feared. He will let you stall and stay stalled as long as your pride allows it. The, 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 one of the attributes of God that um, is unfortunate is that he is polite. He will knock. He will not break in your door. Knock loud. <laughs> and you can continue to ignore it, right? You know, just, yeah, 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 me, me, me. And, and so you, you need to understand that there is a war going on for the expulsion of your ego, and the more you focus on you, the more trouble you get in with this. Again, you can stay here for as long as you want, decades. Let me give you a, um, kind of a, a concrete example of what needs to be done in our souls that will help maybe ex- explain what's going on spiritually in our life, or so, even psychologically. Uh, Ray Anderson, I'll mention him again. He, he wrote our sermon today. Uh, he went to Georgia Tech, and, and Georgia Tech, for about 30 years, I have no idea why. I guess it's a way of filtering kids, but uh, everyone had to take a drown-proofing course. Everyone, their freshman year, a PE course, 30 years of people, Georgia Tech people, love to talk about when they took drown-proofing. And it was more like Navy SEAL training, because that's what actually uh, the person who wrote the curriculum is very similar to that. One, one of the many crazy things that every freshman had to do was they had to touch their chest to the bottom of an eight-foot pool. Now, in addition to that being difficult, they tied their, their ankles together and their hands behind their backs. So they would jump in the pool. They couldn't dive. They had to jump in the pool and then door, you know, porpoise kick all the way to the bottom. But the trick, the physics of the only way you can succeed in this endeavor, the only way you can pass this particular test is if you expel every single bit of air out of your lungs. Because the air is what's keeping you buoyant, and that's what's keeping you from touching your chest to the bottom. Air is not your friend. Air is your enemy. It's a metaphor. Your ego is not your friend. Your ego is your enemy. Your ego is the thing that keeps you using your freedom to choose the thing that destroys your freedom. It's your ego that causes you to choose an environment that enslaves you instead of frees you. 
And, and let me show you how this shows up most of the time. Let me show you how your air bubbles are showing themselves. God in, has given us the primary means of making us like his son, marriage and work. And, and, and marriage and work were originally designed for airless lungs, where mates could freely give with humility love towards one another. And when that happens in a marriage, oh, it's magic. I mean, you, it, people stop and watch. Perfect strangers will notice you. But if there is ego in your soul, if there is air in your lungs, you can never touch the bottom. You can never meet the goal. And that's where the fighting is, and that's where the rift is. And marriage is a gift from God. Now it's being used to identify all the ego issues in our life that prevents you from enjoying what it was meant. Work is the same way. Most of the turmoil at work is because we cannot freely give, we cannot live in an environment where we give love with humility, right? Or we can't love our coworker like we want to be loved ourselves. And so... Because the ego keeps us from doing that. Our ego has to be exalted or exhausted from that, right? As long as you're full of yourself, you can't have that. Now, if you ask people, it's a, some, usually what has to happen in a person's life is they have to come to a point of frustration and exhaustion and kind of a, almost a hate towards a fish living on a couch, a fish out of water. And they, and they just want more. They know there was much more for them. And, they, and God's Spirit is patiently waiting for them to open that door up. I, so knowing I was going to be speaking on this this week, I went to a lot of the leaders in our church and said, hey, can you tell me a time where you had an experience where, you know, you, you, know, you were a follower of Jesus Christ, but you weren't experiencing the abundant life like you were promised. You weren't having exciting peace or peace-filled excitement. And they said, oh, yeah. I know the day that changed. I can tell you where I was, who I was with, and, and what time of day it was. Because it's a life-changing experience. I'll, here's, here's some, I'll just give you some story, just little pictures. Right? One, one gentleman was in a hospital bed, and there was too much time and too much quiet. And he started thinking through his life and said, this is, this is not the way to live. And I can't do this anymore. I, there must be something more. One was in a restaurant, and someone was sitting across the table from him, and they were going back and forth, and they were having this giant misunderstanding until one person said, it is not what you are doing that's the problem. It is you. It is who you are that is the problem. And it changed his life. Absolutely revolutionized his life. I know a person that she sat in the driveway of her, uh, or sat in the car in her driveway, couldn't get out of the car, because she couldn't give anything else inside that house, because she was dried up, because all the love that she was giving was her own love. It was an overflowing waterfall love, and she knew something had to change, and she wasn't going to open the door until God showed up, and so she had to let all the ego out of her soul. I, I know a man who was at a funeral, and I don't know whatever was happening with the people up front talking, all he heard was, you're going to be next, and you're running out of life, and you will die a person with great despair and regret. This is your last warning, and he changed. One of our leaders was having so much difficulty in his marriage, and it had plateaued, peaked, been bit. He went outside of his house between the two houses, face down in the St. Augustine, grabbed it, and screamed as loud as he could. And when he let go, 
he was done. No, he, his ego was done. And on that day, he became the husband God meant him to be. These are all stories of men and women who were born again, and they would tell you it was as though they were born again, again, and again, and again. You know, I don't, I don't know what brought you here today. Whatever, you, know, you might come to see some friends. You might have driven by, and this is, you want to see what's going on in here. But I, wanna, I, want, I want you to entertain this thought, that in the sovereignty of God and how he works in all the universe and in the details, that he put you in America, in Austin, at this time. And I would say in this auditorium at this very moment, because you needed to hear this part. You're not living the abundant life, and it's your fault. You have ego in your soul, you have air in your lungs, and you will never touch what God wants you to experience because it's always about you somehow. And haven't you done enough damage, right, to yourself and to friends and loved ones to just say, you know, I've got to unlock these doors and let you in. I hear you banging, but I know you won't enter unless I let you in. You don't always have to be right because mostly you're wrong. <laughs> so how about maybe today is that day. Maybe today is the day. All of this is orchestrated so that you could come and hear what Galatians is trying to tell you, that you were designed for love, sacrificial, selfless love. That is, that is your soul was built to swim in that. And you have to give him every bit of your selfishness. And here's how, here's how you get there, and this is how you maintain this place. You focus not on love or not even on you and your selfishness. You focus on him. You focus on this, that he loved you and gave himself up for you. You focus on, um, this, the, again, the, this eagerly awaiting the righteousness that our hope is in. What did we sing about? Gee, we, what did we sing about? I see you there hanging on the tree. That's what I'm focusing. You bled and you died and you rose again for me. Now I, sitting in, I see you sitting on your heavenly throne. Uh, that is so beautiful. You're coming back for me. And then we arrive at eternity shore when death is just a memory and the tears are no more. Focus on that. We enter in as the wedding bells rings. The bride will come together and we'll sing, You're beautiful. This is how you get there, and this is how you maintain that place. You're focusing not on love. You're not focusing on you and all about you, and it's always, it is on him, who he is and what he's done. And the more consistent you are, not in, the, not in having to do, but in this love affair, the more consistent you are in that, the more you experience the abundant life that you've been promised. Maybe your whole life, 10,000 days, we're building up for today, for this moment, for you to let all the air out of your lungs, let all the ego die where it belongs, and let the Spirit of God fill you and overflow you so that you might swim, that you might be free, that you are free indeed. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to pray this with me, and I want you to pray this for the person on your right. I want you to serve lovingly the person on your right. I'm not expecting you to know them. I don't want you to touch them or name them or anything, okay? But I want you to, I want you to pray for you 
and I want you to pray for that person on your right, okay? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, um, I, I would ask that your spirit would penetrate our souls so that we would desire more. And the more uh, doesn't have us in the picture, the more has you and this blinding glory and beauty that captivates our thoughts and our feelings, that we define ourselves by being a child of yours, a person that inherits the righteousness that was in Jesus Christ, that our lives are vanquished of ego. This is killing us. It is enslaving us and killing us. So, Lord, on this day, I swing the door open for your spirit to come in and that we would live a life that's serving one another in love and humility. Lord, I pray this for my friend uh, to my right, my brother or my sister, that you might give them an experience in their driveway or in a hospital or at a funeral uh, or in a restaurant. But I think they want, they, they're trying to give you permission to say, I, I want so much more. I want this abundant life you promised, and you're promise keeper, so it must be me. And so, Lord, I'd ask that you would surround us, make us a church like that, that our aroma is one that's grace-filled and that, and that fills this auditorium and then the lives around us and the city of Austin. Let us be that. Self-forgetful. Always remembering you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.